I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 14, Mark chapter 14. This morning we will be looking at the events of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and his prayer to Christ. As we come to Mark 14, uh, Mark has been narrating the events immediately preceding the arrest of Jesus. There are three events in Mark 14 that he records uh, that uh, were important for him and his readers before the arrest of Christ. First, through the story of Christ's anointing, Mark demonstrates the wholehearted sacrifice that is required for Jesus' followers. In your Bibles in verses 1 through 11, we worked through that a few weeks ago, we saw the anointing story. And although the scribes and priests and Judas Iscariot illustrate a twisted plot to kill Jesus for money, an unnamed woman is found in the middle of the narrative. And she reveals wholehearted sacrifice for Christ. This is a woman who dumps expensive perfume over Christ. Uh, We said that the perfume cost perhaps almost up to a year's uh, worth of work or labor. And she breaks the vial and pours it over him abundantly. For, For this unnamed woman, in Mark's narrative, the cost of the perfume was nothing compared to the treasure of Jesus. I think this woman comes very close. She's approaching one who loves God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the first narrative of the anointing, we have faithfulness illustrated, or we have uh, sacrifice illustrated with this woman. Secondly, the second narrative is verses 12 through 31 in a record of the Last Supper. And we saw this uh, last Sunday night. Mark illustrates faithfulness in this account. And so, while there's prediction of the disciples' failure to stand with Jesus, the middle of the story, again, emphasizes faithfulness, but this this time through Christ's own work. And Christ, in a symbolic way, pictures what his future sacrifice is going to be like. Where he says his blood will be poured out, and his body will be broken and assaulted for the sins of humanity. Today, we come to Gethsemane, the final event preceding the formal arrest of Jesus. And in this passage, we will consider the anguish and the difficulties that Christ experienced as he prepared for the cross. Throughout Mark's gospel, we have seen Jesus with resolve and strength and brazen authority Today, in the garden, we'll see him collapsed on the ground. And in this moment, I think that we can learn something as followers of his. We can learn steadiness or fortitude in trial. So it's my prayer that God will teach us through his word this morning to observe our wonderful Savior and the steadiness and the fortitude that he discovered through trial. I think one of the great things, I think, for us all to consider doing from time to time would be to read the biographies of great Christian martyrs. People like you and me, but who God gave grace 
and strength to face the task of death for the name of Christ. One of my most, uh, one of the most memorable stories of Christian martyrs for me would be the twin execution of Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Ridley. In 1555, these two men joined alongside of the other Oxford martyrs where they were killed for the cause of Christ. And I'm moved especially when I hear accounts of how Hugh Latimer encouraged Nicholas Ridley while Ridley was on the stake burning for the cause of Christ. He, he said this to Nicholas Ridley. He said, be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light a candle by God's good grace in England, as I shall trust, will never be put out. Today, what I imagine us doing is to look at Jesus, who steadies himself before his own execution, and to look at him to learn, to learn how we might endure trial. The story of Gethsemane takes place in verses 32 through 52. And uh, for our purposes today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to work through the passage. And then, after we work the whole way through the passage, I want to illustrate Mark's main emphasis to you in the story. And I want to make application to our own lives. And so the text emphasizes the overwhelming sorrow and difficulty that Jesus faced in Gethsemane. I want you first to see the overwhelming sorrow in verses 32 through 36. So look down in your Bible at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Here Jesus faces overwhelming sorrow in the garden. Just giving you a little background of the information here that's going on. Jesus and his disciples had just celebrated Passover, a good meal in the upper room. And now they're traveling to the Mount of Olives. They do not return to their normal headquarters when they're in Jerusalem. Their normal headquarters in Jerusalem would be to go over to Bethany, to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and to stay there. They cannot go there, for this is Passover, and you must remain in the outer limits of the city of Jerusalem, which are extended because of the hundreds of thousands of guests here for Passover. But it does extend to the Mount of Olives. And so they're going to spend the evening outside. They're going to spend the evening, perhaps under the stars, in the garden called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane is an Aramaic word which means olive press. And so apparently this garden contained an orchard of olive trees and a press for processing them. Okay, so Jesus is there with the disciples. He's been there before. They've been here before. They've, they've spent time here before. But once in the garden, Jesus then leaves groups of disciples behind him. He starts by leaving the 12, 
in one location in the garden, and then he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and then he leaves them there as well, the inner circle, so that he might seek God the Father in prayer. As you look at verses 32 through 36, one thing should stand out to you about that paragraph, and that is sorrow. Okay? There's a lot of sorrow being described. There are at least four ways it's described in these verses. First, look in the middle of verse 33. It says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That's one way that Jesus or Mark describes the sorrow of Jesus. And this is very vivid. The began to be. It's the picture of it being suddenly. This suddenly comes over him. Great distress and trouble as he goes into the garden. But then secondly in verse 34. Jesus himself describes it this way to the three. He says, my soul is very sorrowful. Jesus uses these words. He's describing to the disciples that he's very sad. He's extremely sad. He uses the language of the psalmist. And the, the, the psalms uh, in, in, in the middle of the 40s uh, in the Old Testament uh, to say that his soul is deep in sorrow. Now the word that Jesus uses, or that's used here by Mark, to capture what Jesus says about sorrow here is a very vivid, strong word. It has a prefix in front of the word, which is the prefix peri, okay? Which often, like, for instance, in our language, when we talk about, like, the perimeter, the perimeter, we're talking about the surface all along the outside, everything around so when Jesus uses this word, he is saying that his entire soul is experiencing overwhelming sorrow. He's crying out from the depths of his being. So great is his anguish here that Luke tells us in the parallel account that it is as if great drops of sweat like blood come pouring out of him here as he prays in the garden. He's in much sorrow. But then back in Mark, Jesus continues to describe it this way. I'm, I'm experiencing so much sorrow. My soul is so overwhelmingly filled with sorrow that uh, he says that it's, uh, his sorrow is as being even unto death itself. The grief that Jesus is experiencing, and this should shock us as readers, because again, Jesus is normally strong. He stands right in the face of a thousand demonic beings, doesn't flinch, but now... He says he feels like he's just about ready to die. He's what he's experiencing at this moment, he tells the disciples, is almost killing me. And finally, I think we can see his overwhelming sorrow with the picture of his prayer posture, how he prays. For Mark has Jesus departing from the inner three. He knows what he does next. He goes away from Peter, James, and John. And then the text says, he throws himself on the ground. Very strong words. Could, could also be translated, he collapse, collapses. Here Jesus, overwhelmed by great anguish and sorrow of the soul, collapses in solitude and prays to his Father. I think this prayer posture reveals Christ's overwhelming sadness and grief at the thought of what awaits him at the cross. But Jesus does not only face overwhelming sorrow, he also faces overwhelming ignorance 
and opposition. And this is how I take all of verses 37 through 52. Overwhelming ignorance and opposition. Here, the rest of the passage will show how other people impact Jesus and his sorrow during these moments, and it will not be pretty. Okay, and so first, the first group who added to Jesus' overwhelming predicament were his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. I want you to see how they respond to Jesus' sadness and his prayers in verses 37 through 42. So look down to verse 37. Says he, and he came and found them sleeping. When he said to Peter, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here, men men and women, as Jesus is struggling for the souls of sinners, his closest friends are asleep soundly some distance away from him. Jesus is surrounded here by only three of his disciples. They're not too far away. They perhaps can even hear him praying when they're awake. Some might wonder why these three, why Peter, James, and John, and often you get that when you go through the Gospels, right? Why do these three get all the advantages? Why do they get to see all the things? Why do they get to hear all the things? I think in this case the answer is pretty simple. All three of these men in the inner circle of Jesus had recently vowed their willingness to endure alongside of him. Okay, so we've already looked at this, but look at Mark 10, 38 through 40. Just flip back there in your Bible. Mark 10, 38 through 40. And we'll see when James and John did this. Okay, Mark 10, 38 through 40. There in your Bible, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said, who's that? That's James and John. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Remember the account here, James and John asked for the best seats in the kingdom of God, one at the right hand, one at the left hand of Jesus in glory. Jesus says, yes, but can you go through the same sort of future that I'm going to go through? Can you drink the cup, the death that I will experience? And they say, sure, we can. So James and John had vowed their loyalty to him in going through the same sort of death that he did. Now, what about Peter? Go over to Mark 14, a little closer to our text. Peter just vowed this. Mark 14, verse 29 and verse 31. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. See that in your text? Remember this? Peter's determination, even if all the disciples fall away, 
There's one person who won't. It's me. Then verse 31. Jesus corrects him, but then, but then he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So it appears to me that Jesus rebukes them because of their previous profession of strong commitment and loyalty to Christ. Peter himself is the last person to express this to them, and so he goes up to Peter and says, Simon, are you sleeping? Like, just a few hours ago, you said you would die with me, and I told you about my sorrow, and you're sleeping? But his rebuke is not only because of their insensitivity to Jesus. His rebuke to Peter and to the three is because he challenges them to pray for something else. He challenges them to pray that that they themselves will not succumb to temptation. You see that? So Jesus' rebuke is not only, you know, it's not like, you know, you're not praying for me. You're not concerned for me. His rebuke is, you should be praying too. Lest you be overwhelmed with temptation. You see, their drowsiness at this crucial moment I think, is due to their failure to realize how crucial the next few minutes would be for them. Had they only known, right, that they were hours or minutes away from the greatest test of their Christian faith that they would ever experience. Do you think they would have prayed? You know, as I was thinking about them, and their brazen fortune, and their just desire for sleep. I, I couldn't help but often think of my own Christian experience. I mean, how often are we like them here? What we need to realize is we are very vulnerable to failure as followers of Jesus Christ. And I just think this is a daily practice. A daily practice. And I, it, it, it should be an ongoing thing throughout the day. Oh, Lord, deliver me from temptation. It's like a Jewish rabbinic teacher teaching that used to to teach or to think that the more temptation we endured, the better it was for us. We just built up our fortitude. But Jesus is not like that. He's not like the Jewish rabbis there. Jesus says what you need to pray is you need to pray not even to go into it. And I think that this is a great prayer for us. So let's learn from the disciples here to begin. Most, Most of our attention this sermon will be on Jesus. But here we stop for a moment and we say, you know what? We never know when our moment will come. When the great temptation will come our way. We don't want to be like Peter, James, and John sleeping and then run away on Jesus. As we keep our focus on Christ here, Jesus faces great ignorance and opposition from others in the garden. It starts with the insensitivity of his closest friends. Next, we see that he is betrayed by an insider. Look in your Bibles at verse 43. Overwhelming ignorance. Verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. So secondly, here Jesus is betrayed by an insider. Judas arrives on the scene. He's one of the twelve. Mark often introduces him like that, one of the twelve. 
In fact, by this point in the book, it's a little bit redundant, but I think he just does that to just remind us of how shocking this betrayal is. Yeah, I got it. He's one of the 12. Yeah, but did you really get it? He's one of the insiders. Because of the onset of night in the dark garden then, Judas prearranges to betray Jesus with a kiss. It's an ironic mark of betrayal. To get the full picture to this point, Jesus is overwhelmed in sorrow, neglected by the insensitivity of his closest friends, and then is betrayed by an insider in an apparent act of affection. But it doesn't even stop there. It gets worse in the garden for him. Next, he's seized by a mob of people. Look in your Bible, verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out, against, uh, have you come out as against a robber with swords, swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. I think the main point that Mark is making in this section can be seen by one verb that you really need to see that that begins to be repeated throughout the section. It's the verb translated seized. Okay, so I see it four times in this passage. Verse 44, it was up there. They've come out to seize Jesus. Verse 46, they're laying hands on him. A very graphic word. They're putting their hands on him and they're seizing him. It's in verse 49, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. It's again in verse 51 when they talk about seizing the cloak of a young man. This word seize is a strong word which this paragraph kind of revolves around. It's a word that could be translated apprehended. Uh, But perhaps that's not even strong enough. Okay, it could be translated be taken hold of. So Jesus is being taken hold of by a mob of people. The crowd here, the mob, I I think includes religious and political leaders from both Jewish and Roman authorities. And Mark gives this quick little glimmer of the fact that things seem to get a little bit out of hand, right? Someone cuts off an ear of someone. Mark really doesn't have much time for that. We learn in other Gospels that this was Simon Peter who cut off the ear of the high priest servant, Malchus. But according to Luke, Jesus responds by healing the servant. Mark doesn't tell us much of that, but in Mark's account, he just has Jesus question the nature of the seizure. Okay, like, this is completely unnecessary. Why do you come upon me as a mob of people with clubs and swords and all this? You could have taken me in the temple. I mean, every day I'm there teaching. Why do you come after me as as if a robber? And then Jesus understands. It's happening this way to fulfill the Old Testament scripture about the Messiah. I think what Jesus is doing there, he's remembering that text from, from Zechariah that he had quoted earlier about God saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus understands that, you know, it had to take place like this in the garden, in a dark garden, with an angry mob of people with clubs and spears, so that all the sheep, his followers, would scatter. So Mark has Jesus being seized by a mob of people. But 
Jesus' sorrow and affliction doesn't even stop there. It's not yet finished. And in verses 50 through 52, the end of the text that we look at today, Mark gives an, an intriguing account, that's all I'll call it. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. An intriguing account of Jesus being abandoned. Here he's abandoned by all of his followers. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I said it was intriguing, right? So what is going on? What's the point of this text? Why is this story included? I think the key, again, is found in the verbs, verses 50 through 52. There's some repeated here. The word left is found in two forms, in verse 50 and verse 52. And the, the verb fled is found twice in verses 50 and 52. Okay, look at verse 50. And they all left him, verse 52, but he left the linen cloth. Two forms of the word for left here. And then fled, verse 52. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Verse 52. But he left the linen cloth and ran away, naked, fled. Same word. So what Mark is doing in this text is he's talking and he's describing everyone. Everyone is leaving and fleeing. Okay, it starts with all of the remaining disciples in verse 50, and then it continues with a young man who lasts longer than all the others in verses 51 and 52. Now, unfortunately, we don't know who this young man is. Who is this young man who's got a linen cloth who's following Jesus? Now, there are a few different ways or theories that people presented over the years I think are intriguing. One way people take this is to say that this young man who flees away naked is the author of the book. You know, maybe this is John Mark. He's like a producer, okay? And in the scene, he describes his, he puts himself in there, you know, but of course, this would have to be something that he was actually there. Okay, if this is John Mark, this doesn't speak well for his character because some of the first few times we see him in the, in the New Testament, he's fleeing. Flees here, perhaps, and then he flees with Paul on his missionary journey when things get hard. Others say, no, it's not the author, but this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament text. It's just an anonymous guy in the garden, but it fulfills an Old Testament text, and you can write down this passage, Amos 2, verse 16. Amos 2, verse 16, some people think that this is being fulfilled by this guy who runs away naked. Amos 2, 16 says, even the brave flee away naked in that day. A great day of future judgment. So James Edwards, for instance, writes, the prophecy of Amos has come to pass among all of Jesus' followers. Even the bravest of warriors will flee away naked on that day. So it could be. It could be a fulfillment of an Old Testament text like Amos 2. That's why Mark has it there. Or I think better. This is the way I take it. It might be a startling testimony to the aloneness of Jesus. The isolation of Jesus. The last 
brave young man by his side chooses to flee away in naked shame over staying with Jesus. I had two choices here. They've seized him. They've got him just like Jesus. I've got two choices. Either I can remain with Jesus, go into Jerusalem with this mob of people, or I can strip this, strip this piece of clothing off and get away naked. And this man chooses the former, the shame of going away naked. And so everyone leaves him. By the way, I, I think of those different options. I, I think it could be any one of the three. I think it could be combinations of the three together. The emphasis, though, is on aloneness. Everyone leaves Jesus. Even this man who chooses, chooses to flee away in nakedness and shame instead of sticking it out with him. And so, all around Jesus is chaos, betrayal, and abandonment. That's the story of Gethsemane. It starts with Jesus collapsed on the ground. It ends with him having the firm resolution resolved to go with the soldiers and the mob into the city. And so, that should leave us with one question. My opinion, one question. The question is, how? How did Jesus overcome the overwhelming sorrow and ignorance and the abandonment that he felt? How was he able to remain steady in his great affliction? And that brings me to the last point I want to make with you. The primary lesson for followers of Jesus Christ is good not only for the persecuted believers in Rome who first received this book, but it's good for all of us. The way Jesus steadies himself in this text is not reliance on close friends or insiders, but through prayer. And I want to look with you again at a verse that we didn't say much about. Verse 36. Jesus steadies himself in prayer. It says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, men and women, I've been meditating upon this verse all week, throughout the week, and the profound nature of this verse is astounding. Okay, do you understand what's going on in verse 36? You have one member of the Godhead talking to another. You have a window into the divine relationship that's unlike any other prayer we read of in Mark's gospel. I mean, three times Jesus prays in this gospel, but here the content of his prayer is revealed to us here in these succinct statements. And so I, I just want to draw out a few important aspects of them. I've got four. Let's go pretty quickly. First, I want you to notice the closeness of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus calls out in this moment, Abba, Father. Okay, which, of course, very close title. Jesus had isolated himself from every other form of help or distraction. And in the quiet of the garden, he cries out to his Father to help him. I, I love the fact that later on in the New Testament, there is a writer by the name of the Apostle Paul who extends this title 
to be given by those people who would also be followers of Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 15. Paul says, But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, so this title of endearment, this close title, Jesus has collapsed to the ground. He prays, Abba, Father, is a, is a prayer that anyone who has the Spirit of God indwelling them can pray as well. So you see the closeness of this relationship, but then second, notice the unflinching belief of Jesus in the power of God. What does Jesus pray? He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. I mean, just before this, in Mark's comments, he said Jesus was praying if it were possible for him, if, if things were possible for God. But here you have Jesus' statement of his unflinching belief in the power of God. Everything is possible with you, God. James Edwards helps me here a little bit with Christ's struggles. He writes, Perhaps as with Isaac, the sacrifice can be averted even though the arm of Abraham is raised for the dagger's plunge. Remember that story in the Old Testament? Abraham and Isaac. And the sacrifice is just about ready to come, but then God provides a different way. A lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. Remember this? It says Jesus is praying in the garden He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for for you. And then he's going to make a request. This is the, the third aspect of it. I want you to notice the freedom that Jesus enjoys with the Father in prayer. Freedom. I mean, this is astounding to me. Read the next phrase. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus prays in the garden. Remove. That is an imperative, folks. It's a command. It's an urgent request to the Father. Remove it. Remove what? The cup. Looked at the cup before in different ways, but I think he's going a little bit farther in his understanding of what the cup is here. Jesus looks at the cup that he's going to drink. The cup of all of the world's sin throughout all of time. He realized that all of the sins and disobediences of humanity would be poured upon his own soul. And as a result, that he will face all the divine wrath and judgment of God upon sin. So Jesus is going to do here at the cross. He will take billions of people's eternal wrath and damnation upon his own self. No wonder he flinches, right? No wonder he collapses. The very thought of this is so daunting that according to his own testimony, he says that he almost died right there in Gethsemane. Another text we find, it takes an angel, an angel of the Lord comes and ministers to him. But then guess what happens? He submits himself to God in prayer. 
And he finds new resolve to stand against all the forces of hell. This is a new resolve, and not too long after this, he says to the disciples right after this, rise, be going, look, the betrayer. And so finally, I want you to notice the fourth aspect. We've seen the closeness of his prayer, the unflinching belief in his prayer, the freedom that he enjoys, remove this cup from me, and then finally, notice the submission in Jesus' prayer. The submission of his personal desire to the Father's will. The text captures this in two phrases, right? At the end of verse 36. Verse 36 is profound, folks. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. will." Here we come to what one preacher called a collision of wills. It's perhaps a little overstated, but you have two wills here. One revealing the humanity of Christ, the other the will of the Father. I think it's not too uncommon for us, by the way, to have a collision of wills. Our will and God's will. Well, what do we do when my will and desire is different than God's will or desire? How do we handle that? I say, just look at Jesus. Jesus teaches us here. And so to Jesus' prayer for intervention, remove this cup from me, he adds a prayer of submission. Not my will, but your will be done. Prayer for intervention. Help me. Remove the cup from me. The prayer of submission. Yet not what I will, but what you will. By looking through the window today at Jesus in the garden, I think we have a great example to follow. Jesus steadies himself as he pours out his desire to Christ. This is my desire. But then submits. And so as we close, I ask you, what painful choice are you facing today? Which your struggle. Perhaps it's your life pursuit. You're a young person here who fears that God is calling you to some sacrificial, difficult task with the gospel of Christ. And so, you resist it. I say, oh, young person, won't you submit your will to the will of your Father? Your Father. He's our Father as well. This is not just like the will of some sovereign being who's abstract. This is the will of your Father. Won't you submit your will to the will of your Father? Or perhaps there's a question regarding your future spouse partner. You you desire to marry a certain person, but you know it's not God's will. Perhaps you're unsaved. You know, it's very clear in the New Testament that believers should be not marrying unbelievers, being unequally yoked, and so you wrestle with it, right? My will, his will. And so, young person, won't you just submit yourself to the will of your father? So much better. God has plans for you to glorify his name. And that's ultimately what's most important, isn't it? Glorifying his name. 
Is it perhaps that there's some need to stand in, in integrity at work for you? Against immoral practices. Against dishonest practices there. So left to myself, I've got like this desire, and it's not to stand against that. I just want to like go along with it. I'm going to keep going, and then you find out that you've got this conflict. You've got like, yeah, that's your will, but what's God's will? You submit to the Father's will. Perhaps it's your physical health. You've asked him to intervene to deliver you, but will you submit? Will you submit to the will of the Father regardless of that? Will you say today, not my will, but yours be done? Will you surrender to the will of your Father and be steadied to face any challenge or trial that comes your way? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we hear a lot of preaching. We hear a lot of preaching. And we've heard all about Jesus. We've considered him in moments of height and victory, splendor, sometimes those moments dull in our imagination. Father, this morning, through prayer, I have attempted to just give us a brief glimpse or picture of a moment in Christ's life when he was overwhelmed, thought he would die. Oh God, help us not be calloused to hearing of this moment. As we consider Jesus collapsed on the ground, sweating drops of blood, may we leave, not leave here, Lord, unaffected. We consider this picture. We consider the strength that you gave him to rise and to face his betrayal, betrayer through the steadying influence of prayer. Making requests, yes, but then submitting, submitting to your will. Lord, may we learn this as well. May we learn that through any trial, difficulty, or life choice, your will is most important. And may we submit our will to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.